In this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Steli Efti about his highs and lows of the past year, and we talk about building your first sales process. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 464. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Steli Efti, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Each week on this show, we cover topics relating to building startups without venture funding. We're ambitious founders, but we're not willing to sacrifice our lives in order to get our startup off the ground. And this week, I talk with Steli Efti. You'll know him as the founder of Close.com, but also as one of the world's foremost experts in startup sales processes, both getting them going, optimizing them, scaling them up, sales compensation, inbound, outbound, all that kind of stuff. And Steli has written close to a dozen books and eBooks on this topic. And today he's on the show and I asked him some fun questions. I asked him what his high of the past year was, I asked him what his low was, and then we dug into some topics from the book. And just hearing him talk about sales is like a master painter talking about how to put color on a canvas. Steli knows so much and has thought so much about this topic that he could literally, I think, do stand up and do a 30-minute talk that is well-structured, coherent, and would help the audience at the drop of a hat on almost any sales topic. Like you could just ask him a single question and and he would do it. So he's a wealth of knowledge and information. And this is the second time he's coming back on the show. If you haven't heard of Steli, he runs uh, one of the world's most popular CRMs. It's called, it used to be called close.io and they recently got the .com. So it's at close.com now, but you know, they raised a small amount of money, like a single round. And I believe they either have since bought out their investors, or at least the investors are still on board. But they went from trying to do the big venture funded thing and pretty quickly switched to being a fully remote, basically indie indie funded, you know, independently funded SaaS startup. They're much more in the vein of a, of a Zapier or a cart hook where they took that initial round and they did technically take funding, but much more a bootstrapper at heart, you know, and they kind of run it like a bootstrap startup where yeah, I'm assuming there's being profit thrown off. Instead, while Steli doesn't talk about revenue numbers, if I were to guess they have to be north of, let's say, seven or eight million. I'm guessing somewhere between eight and 15 million, if I were to guess. And again, he's never told me that and their numbers are not public, but it gives you an idea of the scale that, you know, that Close is, is running at. On that note, I have been noodling on this, this term, trying to figure out a better term to describe these kinds of companies, the companies that did raise a small amount of funding, and whether it's from Indie.vc or Tiny Seed, or whether it was from a group of angels, but you look, there, there's a whole swath of companies now, the right messages, you know, Carthook, Close.com, Zapier, Leadfuse, Churnbuster, you know, where they do raise these single rounds, but they're not venture track, and yet they're still going to be highly profitable, life-changing businesses. And and I like the term because they're not technically self-funded anymore, but they're also, you know, they're not VC funded. And I'm loving this term independent, like independent SaaS, independently funded. And, and I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they're like indie funded or indie SaaS, but that is kind of what I'm noodling on. So it's, it's a nice catch-all phrase. And I think the thing I like about independent is it doesn't just speak to whether they're funded or not, because saying someone is funded or not it's just a mechanism, right? It's just have they taken money? And so if I've taken a dollar in funding versus a hundred million, is that, is it a binary thing? It's not. And, and the idea of independent startup, independent SaaS 
is to me, it's that ethos, right? It's that I'm an ambitious founder and I want to build something great and I want to impact my small corner of the world, but I'm not here to make a dent in the universe. I'm not here to do the big Silicon Valley, go big, go home, be a billion dollar company. I'm not willing to sacrifice my life, my health, my relationships to grow my company. You know, it really is the microconf startups for the rest of us ethos. And we on this podcast and we at microconf have never been anti-funding. Never. You can listen back to, you know, go go to Startups with the Rest of Us and search all the transcripts for funding. And you'll see that we have since the beginning talked about it as one option towards getting to your goals. And if you can get to your goal of having a business that supports you or building a million dollar or $10 million business without losing control, without sacrificing yourself, doing it in a sustainable and organic fashion in a way that fits around your life goals, then why wouldn't you do that? It's just knowing what you're getting into and what you're doing. And independent SaaS and independent startup, I like that term because it implies that you haven't given up control and that the founder or founders are still in control and that they're independent of kind of this big machine, the VC industrial complex, people might call it, where you lose the ability to sell your company even though you have a minority investor because they have some right to block a sale. Or you can be removed as the CEO of your own company. Or they can demand demand that you sell your company if you want to keep running it, you know, and take dividends out. And so the, the idea of being independent is, is really striking me lately. And that's something I've been noodling on. And I think I'm going to continue to, uh, to kind of, you know, work with that term. I, I just like the way that it captures a lot of essence and a lot of nuance in, in one phrase. But let's get into the interview with Steli. Oh, and I wanted to mention one other thing. Steli is speaking at MicroConf Europe in, well, just about a month from when this airs. So if you want to hear more from him or meet him, shake his hand, give him a high five, you can meet him in Dubrovnik, Croatia. Just head to microconfeurope.com, buy a ticket, and you, know, you can see him in a month. And with that, let's dive into the conversation. Steli Afti, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Do you realize that Five years, almost to the day, it was September 16th, 2014, you came on episode 202 of this podcast, Outbound Sales for Startups with guest Steli FD. You remember that? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was, I, I don't think we had ever met. Like, I don't think no. you'd spoken at a microconf by then. No. And someone tweeted, it may have been Patio 11. It was someone I knew and trusted tweeted and said, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is before, again, I had never heard of you at the time, you know, and this guy knows about, about startup sales. And so I was like, okay. And I kind of read, I read one of your books. You had, um, I don't remember which book it was, but I, I looked through it and I was like, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. I'll bring him on. Cause you know, we, we didn't, especially back then we didn't do many guests at all on the show. So I was a little hesitant, but when you came on, you you know, you like Mike dropped it. I think we went for like 30, 30 minutes and I, I was like, all right, we're all done. And I had people saying like, you should have just let it go longer. It was one of the few times we've had people say, Steli was on a roll. That was great. <laughs> Super funny, man. Uh, man, I, I, I definitely remember I was listening to your your podcast before I got invited to be on it. And I remember the very beginning of the episode, just my feeling was like, you guys were quite unsure what I would do on it. You know, this <laughs> weird salesperson who knows we need to keep key control over, over the situation, not, not give him too much space. But then over time, I think we, we had a lot of fun and it seemed like you guys... We're like, oh, no, he's not that bad. You know, this is actually, this might be useful to people that are listening. I remember that. We loosened up a little bit is probably what happened. We were like, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah, we've had, yeah, you know, you never know what a sales guy is going to do on your, on your podcast. So, but it's great to have you back. And, you know, 
Today, to give listeners an idea of what we're going to cover, I want to just catch up with you a little bit, hear about some highs and lows, you know, over the past, I don't know, six months, 12 months with, with close.com. Grats on getting that domain, by the way. That's killer. Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your new book, your yours and your team's new book, the 2020 Startup Sales Playbook, How to Close Deals, Grow Revenue, and Scale a High-Performing Sales Team. So yeah, let's let's dig in, man. Folks have already heard from the intro um, about close.com and they know you've been on this long journey. I'd love to ask founders, like, if you think back over the past six months or maybe over the past year, like what is the moment, like the your your low point in terms of the company, in terms of some crisis, you know, something where you thought, oh my gosh, this sucks. Like it's that moment where you start questioning or you you're really just kind of in the in the depths of despair. That's a good question. So I think in the last year, I think one of the biggest challenges was that we had hired a director of marketing and that person didn't work out. And so in the beginning of 2019, we had to part ways with that hire and I had to embark on another mission to try to find our new director of marketing. And the reason why that was hard is that it took us a long time to find the first director of marketing. And I think that we, by the time we hired him, he had really impressed us with a few things that we had kind of found out in the interviewing process. And then working with him, just he never lived up to the work product that he created during the interviewing process. And it was, I think I did, I made the same mistake that I tried to teach so many other founders not to make, especially when they hire salespeople or sales leaders for the first time, is the typical mistake of, I have never hired somebody in this position before. This is somebody that comes from such a great background, such an amazing company, has done such incredible things. And this is such a senior role. Maybe I just need to be a bit more patient. Maybe I need to give this person more space to let their magic work. Maybe the little red flags that I, that I see, maybe I'm just overly critical. And so I gave the whole relationship. I think I didn't trust my instinct and act on my instinct fast enough. And by the time that I realized that things weren't getting better and this was not the right fit, we just had wasted an enormous amount of energy and time and a bunch of things were going in the wrong direction. So having to step in and part ways with that that hire was really painful. And then even worse was that I knew, okay, next time around, I'm not going to make this mistake. I need to again, severely increase the standards that I said. And we already had, you know, we already in general, people tell us that we have unreasonable expectations and standards when it comes to our hiring. And and I knew that this time around, I would have to just make this my full-time job. And it took six months. It took the first half of 2019 to find our new director of marketing. Now I'm super glad we've invested that time because the person we hired is, it's kind of worlds apart from the last hire and what he's been able to do in a very short period of time. But it was just painful. Like hiring is always painful and hiring super senior people, which is something I'm increasingly doing, is even more painful. It just takes so much time, so much energy. And so that was just, when I think about the last year, if I think of one thing that's like soul crushing, it was the hiring process to find the director of marketing. Yeah, if if you've never hired at that level, at that senior level, like a C-level person or a director, you know, or a managing director or whatever, whatever the, the title is, 
it's shocking how few qualified candidates there are out there because a lot of us are used to hiring developers or salespeople or designers. And while there's always a shortage, we know that there are tens of thousands of qualified people, you know, especially, and if you're remote, you know, if you can hire remote, it's, it's hundreds of thousands, um, I would say for any given position uh, around the world. But when you're looking at like a C-level or a director level, there's not that many and there's not that many with the experience, you know, you can find a director at, you know, at Target, you know, or director at Cargill or IBM or something, but it's like, are they really going to be a fit? You know, it's like, how about a director with actual startup experience, maybe in SaaS? I mean, by the time you narrow that down, the universe of candidates is, is very, very small. And so I, I, I have been through it. I went through it uh, after the drip acquisition because we hired a bunch of senior people. And that was an experience I had never, I'd never done. And so when it took six months, as you said, it takes six months to find the right person. And then you find out they're not the right person. It's devastating, right? It impacts your morale, the morale of the team. I can only imagine. Did you, did you feel like you took it harder or like your team took it harder in terms of like a morale hit? I don't know. It's a good question. The truth is maybe those are all kind of like, maybe I'm so good at suppressing certain emotions that I, I'm not fully aware of the impact of some of the things. I wouldn't even describe that I took it really hard. It was just one of those things where I knew I messed up, right? By like letting the situation go too long, giving this person too many chances, waiting too long. And then I knew the price I would have to pay. I part ways with this person. And now the next year, I won't do anything else than this. So it was more of a, I don't know, looking in the mirror and going, yes, buddy, this is gonna, this is not going to be fun, but you're going to have to go through it. Uh, then a like being devastated or being really down or depressed. Or, I wasn't shaken. I knew, I also don't think the team, it's hard to say, honestly, sometimes, but I feel like we have a pretty senior team in terms of people are pretty experienced. And so when this happened, obviously everybody knew, wow, this is going to affect our numbers. This is going to affect a lot of the things that we want to do. But there's also a sense of, yeah, I mean, this is part of life and we will figure it out. Just It's not great, but it's not the end of the world. So it was nobody was necessarily super shaken. I think it was harder. I, I changed my strategy so much with this hiring. One, one big thing that I did that I hadn't done in a long time was going really strong on outbound, not just relying on inbound candidates. And I basically reached out to almost any CMO, VP of marketing and director of marketing of any company that's in SaaS and that is significantly like more successful than us. So I reached out to a ton of people and I would ask for advice calls. I'd be like, hey, I need 50 minutes of your time. I'm trying to hire somebody. And there was always a mixture of me trying to build a relationship with this person and see if they might be the right hire, right? Because the great people, they already have a job. They're not applying for my job most of the time. Maybe there's an opportunity to hire them. But even if not, maybe I can ask them some advice about my thinking on hiring a great person like them and seeing if they have any advice, any tips, any ideas or learnings that they could share with me. Then I would always ask for referrals and recommendations. Do you know somebody that's looking? Do you know somebody that fits, that could get excited about this opportunity? And that was an incredibly important part of the hiring process, but it's so draining. It was so draining. I would have weeks where I'd have, I don't know, like six, seven of these calls every day, plus all the like evaluating take-homes and inbound candidates and calls with inbound candidates and second calls with people after take-homes. So it was just a super draining process. And, you know, at times in the middle of it, I was just like, this is really not fun. Like, I wish I wouldn't have to go through this. It was more of a like quiet suffering than a being devastated or being like crushed. Like that was, that, that would more accurately, I think, represent how I felt this year. 
quiet suffering. I like that phrase. I think that describes a good chunk of, of starting a company, actually. So, so, so let's get off that topic. What's, what's been your high point? Like, what is the big victory? Aside from, from getting this book out the door, which, you know, congratulations, it's, it's a, a huge deal. It just went live, I think, in the last week or so. But aside from that, like, what's the thing that, that you really look back on in the past year and you think, man, we crushed it. That was such a high point. Yeah, they're actually, uh, and I'm very grateful for this. There were a couple of things this year, but I think the biggest was we completely revamped our pricing in the first quarter of this year. And that was by far the largest, most complicated and riskiest project in our company's history, right? So we've been around, the product close has been around since January, 2013. So what, it's like six years at the time that we did this project. In six years, this was the most complicated thing that we've ever done because for us it like our pricing was quite complicated because we did a few crazy things one we gave you unlimited telephony features in packages with certain plans right so you could do unlimited north america calling and sms in our pro plan and unlimited international calling and sms on our business plan and on on top of this we were the only saas product in the crm space maybe even the only saas product ever in with some significance that offered mix and matched price plans so you could have one org where you could have you know choose three different plans for three different users in your in your organization and we did a bunch of other things and we had to change all of this. We kind of lowered our base entry price. We disconnected the, the telephony feature and the, the, the cost associated with it from the core plans that we had. We stopped mix and match, so you had to choose one plan for all your users. We did a bunch of changes around prices that were quite complicated. And, and we have a customer base of thousands of customers and we had organizations of like 300 users uh, on, in one org that had seven different types of plan prices and use telephony in some crazy setup way. And so it was a very, very complicated project for us to switch to pricing, to communicate it with our current customer base, to use that opportunity to do a lot more annual contracts, to change the way we did discounts. It was such a complicated project, both from how our product works, how the UI and billing works, how our relationship with our customers are, marketing funnels, everything. And it was one of those projects, there's very few things that you do in a, in a startup where it's really life or death. Most experiments, most things you change, if they don't work, it's not usually life or death. It's like, ah, this is annoying, this didn't work as well, we, but you can change it. But this was one of those projects where we knew if we mess it up, this could cost us an insane amount of money. And this could really like affect the business. We were also acutely aware during that time, a lot of other companies had changed their prices and a bunch of these strategies pricing changes didn't go down really well. And so we were hyper aware of treating our customers really well, over communicating, being really strong in our communication. So we spent an insane amount of time and energy preparing for that drastic pricing change. And it was very stressful, to be honest, especially for me, <laughs> as I was orchestrating all of it. But that, that pricing project went down super smooth, no bugs, no hiccups, no backlash. Most of our customers are super happy about the changes in our communication style. And we hit every single KPI we wanted in terms of what we wanted to do with it. We wanted to be more fair with our customers. We wanted to have more growth. We want to have a simpler business model. We wanted to see certain metrics go up. And you know, now six months after we, we launched this, all these numbers are up. So it was a huge success for us, but it was also super nerve-wracking because it was quite quite a complicated project. 
Yeah. I often find that, that when I ask this question of folks, like what's been your high point over six months or a year, that the high points come after a period of extreme stress or extreme uncertainty or just extreme hard work because you don't get to that high point by sitting on your laurels and not taking risks and, and, and hard work and risks stress people out, you know, so I find that the two go hand in hand. So that's great. That's great to hear. Now, did you guys, did you grandfather when you raised prices? Sort of, but not really. Like, so we, we didn't grandfather in the sense that you could stay on the old price forever. No. But what we did is we did a bunch of customers actually net net with a new price would pay us less money, right? Happy days. Nobody complains about that. And a good chunk of our customers would pay us around about the same amount. All right. Nobody com- complains about that either. There was a small a group of customers that would pay us more, some of them significantly more. And in those cases, we had to go case by case and communicate with the customer and try to figure out how do we deal with this, right? In some cases, just highlighted that the relationship was completely out of whack, right? So we'd show them, listen, you're paying us 5000 a month. That's great. But you're generating 8000 in calling calls. <laughs> this obviously is not a healthy relationship. We want to continue to support you for the next decade, but it won't work if we are losing money every day we work with you. So how do we deal with this? How can we come up with some some plan that puts us in a much healthier place? And honestly, most of the customers, they were like, all right, this kind of makes sense. And they work with us and we figured it out. Then there were some customers, usually the smaller ones, let's say they would pay us 150 bucks and they would have to pay us now 200 bucks. Now those 50 bucks for our business, they're not that relevant, but for them it would be a significant percentage increase in in cost. And so in in some of these cases, we just offered them a good choice and say, hey, listen, you're now month to month with a new pricing, prices would go up, but here's what we want to do. We want to invest in the relationship. And for that, we also need to see that you want to invest in the relationship. If you sign a one-year or two-year contract, will give you a discount that will basically allow you to, your pricing will change, but with the new discount, you'll probably stay around the 150 bucks, right? So you're not going to see any increase. So we did some of that, but what we didn't do is we didn't allow our customer to stay on the old price because our old price was not just a number. It was unlimited calling internationally, plus the ability to add users at any plan at any time. And that was just something we couldn't afford to support with thousands of customers indefinitely. So it was a bit tricky. It had to be, we had to be very careful with the customers that would have negatively been impacted on how to offer them some deal that would move them to new price, but still make this a good relationship for both. And we're able to do that. Yeah, whenever I talk to founders about changing pricing, I kind of have this this playbook. It's like, look, grandfather if you can, but that's not always the case. People who say you should always grandfather, there's some rule that God handed down to Moses that we should always grandfather, (laughs) you know, and that that's not true. But do it if you can. But there are sometimes reasons why you cannot do this. The business is going to go bankrupt. Your plans are way underwater. You know, what whatever. There's a bunch of reasons. And if you decide not to grandfather, then exactly what you just broke down. Whoever saves money you don't need to worry about them. Whoever's breaking even, you don't need to worry about them. Anybody who increases, try to, if you can, go one-on-one, just like you said, and and either uh, cut deals, maybe give a little bit of a discount if you can, maybe do the annual plan. I love that idea. Get creative with it, you know, but work with the, just because you have a thousand customers doesn't mean you treat them like a number. You treat them like individuals, you know, and you break it down. And even if you have 50 or 100 individual emails that you're sending of like, hey, so-and-so, you've been a customer for three years. I mean, that, that takes time to do, but that is that's how we do this you know our these businesses are still serving individuals and companies and so I, it sounds like as i would have expected like you guys handled that that really well so nice work on that 
Yeah, and I think that just to to underline this, it's in those kind of big moments of change where you either strengthen the relationship to your customers or you weaken it, right? And so if I as a customer feel like, wow, this company is changing fundamentally how the product works or is charged for, but look at this, they they pinged me three months before they announced anything, they gave me all this transparency, they reached out, they helped, they worked creatively they really care about me. They really care about me knowing what's going on, understanding what's going on, being prepared for it, and being in a good space. That, I think, leaves a, a strong impression with people. And they go, all right, this is a partner I can rely on long-term. This company is a company I want to work with long-term. The flip side of it is, if for whatever reason I feel blindsided by the change that's happening, I feel not being taken care of, I feel like not being valued, that's going to now break and weaken the relationship. And I'm going to go, shoot, this is a company I cannot trust. This is a company I can't rely on. Who knows when the next change is going to come and how much that is going to impact me. Maybe I should look around for alternatives, right? So anytime you make big changes, you just need to see it as an opportunity to strengthen the relationship. Unfortunately, relationships don't become stronger without a lot of work. So you have to put the work in to make it happen. Yeah, I agree. Well, cool. Let's let's transition in, into talking about your book. Um, as I said at the at the top, it's called the 2020 Startup Sales Playbook. And you know, just so folks know, um, the book is free. You're giving it away. It's a hundred and something pages. I was just about to flip through it. Yeah. How how do they get the book if they will? obviously we can link it up in the show notes? But I think you said you wanted uh, folks maybe to email you. Yeah, I, I always find it to be one of the simpler options. People always take me up on this. So if you want the book, you can just send me an email, stelly at close.com. You can just say, start off for the rest of us book. And in the subject line, you don't even have to write anything beyond that. And I will send you uh, the book for free. We got a, a ton of feedback. I always love when that happens. Whenever we release a book, the biggest feedback we, we get, and this was true for the, this book that we just released on Product Hunt, a lot of people will tweet or email me or ping me in one way or another and go, just spent today, you know, two hours reading the book. So valuable. And even more importantly, I was surprised that it's not a lead gen ma- magnet. There was no pitch about clothes. This was not all about your software and how your software solved all my problems. This was just like a bunch of chapters of highly tactical, practical stuff. And two of these things that I read, I'm going to help apply immediately in my business and try to see results from it. And that's really the the aim that we have, the standard that we set when we put stuff out there. We want people to consume it, learn from it, and immediately get some value. And we just trust that over a long enough time, we give, 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 give. People know we're in the sales space. People know we know a lot about it. People know that we've helped them. And then whenever they need software, a lot of people will come back and go, let me check out Close.com, let me check out their software because I've received so much value from them up front. So I'm super pumped that people get a lot of value from this. And we released it because we felt like the last time we did a a book about how to do sales when you're super early stage, when you're just starting out, was a couple of years ago. And so much has changed in the space that we want to give people a quick update and kind of set up a lot of startups for success for 2020 and beyond. Awesome. The whole just you know, kind of giving things away and just building that brand and building the name brand of, yeah, Close.com and Steli. They really are here to, to help people. I mean, you've spoken at, at MicroConf many times and to, you take time out of your busy schedule and, and it's not like we cut you a paycheck 
to do that, people see that. That does not go unnoticed. And so, yeah, as a listener right now, let's show Steli what the Startups for the Rest of Us audience can do. Flip over into your your little mail app on your phone and Steli at close.com and uh, let them know. Put Startups for the Rest of Us in the subject line and I get this book. I'm actually looking at it right now as we're talking. It's really, really well done. It looks like you actually collaborated with some uh, other companies on it. It has Vidyard and LeadFuse. I'm an investor there and uh, Predictable Revenue and PandaDoc. So they contrib- you had mentioned they contributed some essays as well to the to the book. So what's the difference? You know, I know that that you guys have written you've written like eleven books, I think you were telling me before we before we got on. So what's different about about this book? If folks have read three or four of your other books, like is this about like early stage, like, hey, I'm one to five salespeople and I'm trying to get things going and figure out compensation and should I do outbound inbound? Or is it, you know, further kind of further down the line? Yeah, this is for the early stage of your kind of sales playbook. So this is for both the founders that are doing sales themselves and are just at the very beginning or kind of the phase where you start hiring a couple of salespeople and you try to put together your version one of your sales team and your sales playbook. So it's about the early stage, not the scale up. We've written books about how to, to scale your sales organization. We've written a book about almost any aspect of selling on the tactical stuff, email, cold calling, negotiations, how to give demos, all that stuff. But this is much more of a like Playbook A to Z, if I know very little about selling or I don't have yet a team that is rocking and rolling, it's about scaling that team and scaling our efforts, how do I get started or how do I take the next few steps after I have maybe closed the first handful of deals? Like, How do I do that today and how do I think about that today? Yeah, that's cool. And so as I'm looking through chapters, you have stuff all the way from identifying your perfect customer, inbound, outbound, or both. That's an interesting one. Talk me through how people should think about that inbound, outbound, or both. Yeah. So first of all, people all the time ask me, you know, is outbound sales dead? Is cold calling dead? Is email dead? You know, you every year there's like the headline of like everything that is dead now, right? Uh, everything doesn't work anymore. And when it comes to outbound versus inbound, this is probably one of the biggest questions I get is like, does outbound even work anymore? Does it make sense? And I always say it depends, right? There's companies today that are crushing it, crushing it, new startups today that are crushing it because they bet on outbound, because outbound was the right channel to succeed in the market. And all their competitors were just focused on inbound, right? And then there's companies that try to make outbound work and it they struggle and it never had a real chance. So you have to look at who your buyer is, who is your customer, how do they buy, how do they live life, how do they communicate, to try to understand if Appa would work or not. We have one customer, our largest customer in the world, is a company that has become, I mean, insanely valuable. And one of the main differentiators, they tell me, like I just visited there from the US originally, and they're pretty big here, but they also have a massive office in Amsterdam in Europe, expanding their Europe operations. And I was meeting with their team a couple of uh, months ago. And they were telling me the reason we succeeded and our competitors failed, and they have like all these insanely well-funded competitors that also have built this insanely complicated technology, is that our competitors wanted to build software that basically sells itself, and that does all these kind of viral loops, and that does all these cool things to grow. And we just did hardcore old school hitting the phones because we knew our customer is not online all day long. They're not searching for things all day long. It's not that easy to target them. Even if you target them and you show them an article or something else, they might not just want to spend the time to download things, read things, and get into your online funnel. But we know our customer is picking up the phone because that's how they get business. So we just 
We just did it simple, focused on calling, and we called people hundreds of times, and eventually we got them on the phone. And when we had them on the phone, we would create accounts for them. We would do all the work for them. And we we're able to like crush the competition and build a billion-dollar business by going a very simple straightforward route, which is cold calling versus trying to be super neat and tricky and cool and hip and using kind of all the online ways to market and grow grow the software. So inbound versus outbound, the answer to the choice between one or the other or both always comes from your customer. Who is my customer? Does my customer pick up the phone? Does my customer read emails and answer them? Uh, does my customer buy things mostly online through research? How does my customer buy? And based on their buying and communication ha habits, that's what you should use as the foundation to make a decision if you do outbound sales or inbound sales, and not your personal preferences or your wishful thinking of how the world should work. I don't like if people call me and pitch me, so I'm not going to build a business that does it that way. That can work for some people, but in some industries, if you have that wishful thinking approach, to reality and not a, what is my buyer? What is my customer? How does my customer buy software today? You can get in a lot of trouble. So I would say that outbound and inbound both can work today. And you should have both options on the table as you're considering what to do. Another topic that I'm looking at that I've always been, I've always been intrigued by, and frankly a little intimidated by, and it's the the creating a sales compensation plan. I mean, you have a chapter in here on that. Tell me through the, the, the chapters. It's it's fairly short, and it gives you some good ideas. But I know that in your head, there's more. <laughs> there's more in your head about it than you know than what's here. I guess I, I know there's not a one size fits all sales compensation plan, right? Because it's going to depend on on your average ticket size, how long it takes, like the sales cycles and all that. But how would you think about advising a startup how they should set this up? Where do you even begin? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think a couple of things. So there's some basic principles that apply to many things that apply to compensation plans as well. First principle that I always advise on is to try to keep it as simple as humanly possible because it's going to get very complicated very quickly, right? So if you start with a compensation plan that has like 11 different criteria to compute the number that somebody is earning, you're in trouble on day one already. Like that number is going to go from 11 to 45 and it's just going to crush you. And it's going to completely demotivate the salesperson because the salesperson needs to be able to do the math on how much money they're going to earn at the back of a napkin, right? If it needs a spreadsheet, they're not going to be doing the math, which means the incentive, the driver of knowing if I do this extra thing, I'm going to get this extra bonus, I'm going to be bumped up to this new level of commission. It's not going to apply because the sales reps aren't aware of it because it's too complicated for them to understand how all this works. So you want to start very simple. You want to, in the beginning, make it simple to administrate and to pay out. So I always advise companies highly against starting the first compensation plan in a way that is paying out commissions monthly. And again, here's why. Doing this monthly is just going to be very complicated in the early days, right? Computing it monthly is going to be a pain in the ass. What you want to do in the beginning is you want to probably start out with a commission structure that is much more formed like a bonus program than a commission program. And that is paid out quarterly. So every three months, people get a good chunk of money. Right? But they can work three months towards it. It's not like every four weeks. It doesn't become a big distraction as quickly. So it is a bonus that you pay out every three months. And you probably want to have a balance of criteria. Right, So we always want to have our sales reps obviously focus on closing deals. But we don't want them to focus on closing deals at any cost. 
right? Because that cost matters to us as a, as a company. So if I just say you're going to get 20% commission on any deal you close, most salespeople will close any deal they can close. They're not going to ask themselves, is this customer going to churn a week later? Can we really make this customer successful? Is this really a long-term customer? They're just going to close anyone and everyone they can in any way they can, which is bad for us as a business. I'm paying you 20% on something that is worth very little because the customer instantly cancels. So you want to find some balance. The, the biggest portion of the bonus or commission structure has to be the revenue I'm driving because that is the number one driver. But there needs to be a counterbalance to that that, that rewards quality, right? So instead of paying you instantly a commission on a deal that you close, maybe I only pay you a commission on a deal you closed and that's still a customer three months down the line. And see how now this beautiful works with why I wouldn't want to pay out somebody every month and why paying every three months can make these things sim- much, much simpler. Because large organizations that can pay commissions, that you can have a commission account as a sales rep and you can have a balance that goes up and down depending on your churns, your cancellations, lots and lots of criteria. But when you're starting out and you have like, a couple of sales reps, and you want to put together a commission structure, you don't have the infrastructure to do this at this level of complexity. So every three months, I'm paying you for the customers you closed last three months that are still with us, so they're checked off as good customers. I know one company had a criteria where they knew if a new customer books a training session and has a one-hour training call with our success team, 90% of the time they're going to be a customer you know, six, nine, 12 months down the line. So we're only going to pay sales reps for deals where they closed the deal and the training session happened, right? So now the salesperson was incentivized to not just sell the product, but also sell the training session and make sure that the customer gets to the training session. And if the customer didn't want to talk to the success team and didn't want to have a training, that was a big red flag. Why? Why don't they want to talk to us? Why wouldn't they want to get training, get really as much value out of the product as they could? What's wrong here? So You want to incentivize and give a bonus or a commission on the deals I'm closing, but you want to have a counterbalance. One criteria, it could be customer has to be around three months. It could be NPS score has to be a certain level. It could be has received an onboarding call with our successor support team. It could be qualifies because it's a customer that does XYZ. It could be has signed an annual contract. Whatever it is, something that makes sure that the revenue that are brought in is quality revenue. It's not just any type of revenue, right? I call my mom, tell her to buy this and cancel it a day later, and I'm getting paid for this stuff. That's how it would start. Later on, you can always add more criteria. One thing I like to do for startup sales teams is to not just have a bonus for personal performance, but also have a little bit of a bonus for a team performance. Sales reps are individual team players. It's like, think about athletes in a team sport, right? A basketball player, let's say. If I'm the best player in the team, if I'm like the super crucial superstar player, I don't want to be paid what everybody else is paid, right? That's not how this works because I perform so much more, create so much more value than anybody else. So I mostly want to be paid on my performance, but my team's performance also matters. If everybody's terrible in my team, no matter how great I am, we're not going to win championships. We're not going to win as many games. We're not going to be as high profile. It's going to really affect my, my career, my life as well. And it's going to make me look worse and make my life harder. So ideally, you want to have something where you pay me for my performance as a salesperson. But if the entire sales team hits, let's say, a certain revenue goal or a certain milestone as a team, or maybe even the company hits a certain milestone, a customer-related milestone that I can affect as a salesperson, maybe it multiplies my commission or it adds another bonus to my commission or another whatever incentive to my commission. So there's some alignment that I know... 
if I help another salesperson on the team, I also benefit. Like I'll benefit if the entire team does well, I also do well on top of my personal unique performance. So that's kind of very high level the way that I would think about this. And then another principle to keep in mind is that no matter how great your first version of a commission structure or bonus structure looks like, no matter how thoughtful you were, no matter how many founders like me and other experts you talk to to get advice, whatever you start out with is not going to be the same thing that you are going to have six months, nine months, a year, two, three, four, five years down the line. Commission structures have to constantly be refined, adopted, adjusted, changed, as the world changes, as your company changes, as your sales team changes, it's really a living, breathing thing. You're playing with human psychology and incentives. And the way your commission structure changes, it will change the dynamic of your sales team and the performance and the things that your salespeople do and don't do. And so you're going to have to have this philosophy that you cannot just work on this for a couple of weeks and then be done with it. You're going to have to check in and change and adjust and learn and grow and Eventually, hopefully, you hire like a VP of sales where a really big part of that job is to constantly be refining the commission structure and revamping the commission structure as you're scaling out your organization and your team. But start simple. Don't overcomplicate things. Pay people for their performance, but also make sure that their performance is high quality and you don't just pay them for anything that they do that might not be the real deal. And one last thing I'll say before we wrap this up, since I'm on a roll on the commission thing, is... uh, Please don't pay people on kind of a rolling, never-ending basis. If you're in the SaaS space, what's a really terrible idea is to say, every deal you close, Steli, I'm going to be paying you 25 or 30% MRR every month for the life cycle of the customer. It's a terrible idea. The reason why that's a terrible idea is that every month as I'm closing more and more deals, I'm making more and more quote-unquote automatic money. And eventually, maybe six months, seven months, nine months on the line, I'm making, you know, maybe 10, 15k in commission a month for all the customers that I've closed accumulatively this year. And I know if I don't do anything, if I don't do shit this month, I'm still making 10, 10k, 15k. And if I don't do anything the next three months, I still make pretty good money. That's not the way you want to incentivize a sales rep. Sales reps' performance will definitely going to go down if they know that if they get lazy for a couple of weeks, there's really no consequence. You'd rather pay them a bit more upfront, but it's all now. And next month, my bank account is zero if I don't perform then. Uh, or next quarter, like the next quarter, I'm going to get zero bonus if I don't really perform then, versus giving me this chance to build recurring commission, which then creates this unfortunate situation where eventually I know even if I don't do anything for half a year, I'm still making money every month. And then that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop working right? As a sales rep, I'm going to get distracted and do all kinds of other things. And you're going to keep paying me indefinitely. That's not a good idea. I've seen a couple of startup founders wanted to do this and all of them had massive issues with it. So please avoid that mistake. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, you know, I think there's two things specifically you pointed out that I, I hadn't thought about. One is the, the dangers of doing recurring commissions. I think that makes a, a lot of sense as you spelled it out. And B, I hadn't realized how often you would need to be updating your sales commission structure. It sounds like it's just a fluid thing that changes two, three times a year as you go. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, it can. So in the early days, you might have to change your commission structure two, three times a year. Eventually, maybe it's hopefully going to get less, but, but you might do other things 
Like a lot of times, larger sales teams, they do a ton of things that are actually like messing with the commission structure without publicly doing so. So they'll do uh, certain incentives. They'll have big promotions going on. Oh, this quarter, we have this big promotion. If you do this thing, not just bring in a lot of customers or a lot of revenue, but if you bring in this type of revenue, if you close the biggest, whoever closes the most new logos in the Fortune 500 or whoever does sell most of our new product, that's XYZ, to their existing customer base, will get, you know, whatever, uh, first class ticket to Vegas with a three weekend and five star hotel and, you know, $1,000 to play, like, which is basically just like, gamifying the whole thing, but it's just money, right? They just find different ways to make their sales teams prioritize certain actions and outcomes. But they might not, if you go to a massive organization, they might not mess around with their core commission structure three times a year. But in the early days, as you're building out your sales team, yeah, you might have to switch things around. You might, I mean, your product might change. The customer you go after might change. So you started in the SMB sector and had one commission structure, and then you go more and more up market and you figure out, wow, the way we pay commissions makes no sense for these enterprise deals that our sales reps now are closing because either it's way too little or it's way too much or something entirely different. So yeah, as your product changes, as the market changes, as the customer you're going after changes, as your sales organization changes and widens, Things become complicated. You start off with maybe three people that do anything and everything, right? From prospecting to cold emailing to warm emailing to giving demos to negotiating deals to signing contracts to eventually maybe having a team of SDRs, people that are sales development reps that do all the prospecting, and teams of AEs, account executives that just close and negotiate deals. Well, that now changes the commission structure again, right? The first couple of years, I find that most startups have to actually adjust and change their commission structure quite, quite a bit. That's great, man. Well, um, thanks again for coming on the show. We've covered just, what, three topics out of maybe 20 <laughs> that are in the book, but that, that gives people a good excuse to uh, email you, Stelly at close.com, or they can obviously head over to, to close.com and, and search around for the book. So if folks, uh, obviously, aside from you know heading, heading to close.com to, to see what you're up to, where should they go to keep up with you online? Yeah, I mean, for people that love podcasts like this one, I think a good good group of the audience here probably is aware of it, but I'll say it. Nonetheless, uh, you know, Heaton Shah, who's a legend in our world, right, and a good friend of yours and mine, he and I have a podcast together, The Startup Chat. So you can go to thestartupchat.com if you haven't checked that out or if you've forgotten about it and, and, and subscribe to it and, and, and take a listen. We, we publish twice a week on all the, the major platforms with our episodes on The Startup Chat. Besides that, at Stelly on Twitter, you have my email address, Stelly at close.com. I always love to hear from the startups for the rest of us community and the micropreneur community. Uh, if you have questions, if you have challenges, if you have problems, always happy to help if I can. And always happy to encounter people in real life or uh, online uh, that have heard from me or about me on, uh, on this podcast. Sounds great, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to Steli for coming on, as always, and enlightening us on sales topics. If you have a question for the show, please leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. If you come to startupsfortherestofus.com, you can see the fancy new website. You can subscribe to our email list and see the full transcript of each episode, typically within a week or two of it airing. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.